Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Bill Takesta, and this evening I'm very, very proud to have a panel of speakers who are going to talk to all of us about how and when and whether we should let others know that we do have vision problems. I know that for myself, uh, my situation might have been a little bit different than Richard and Keith's and Annette's in that I had perfect vision for most of my life and I, I, I was an eye doctor. So when my vision started to deteriorate and I was forced to retire from practice, I went through a severe emotional crash. That's the best way that I could state it. I was, first of all, so angry about it that I really did not want to interact with any human being whatsoever. I changed my phone number. I did not let anybody know what was really happening to me, although I did send a letter out to all of my patients to announce my retirement. And I did not talk to anybody about it. And it was really a situation where I was truly embarrassed. And as I think back of that, I don't know why I felt so embarrassed about being visually impaired. You know, besides, my vision really was quite good when I first retired. I had about 20-40 vision in one eye, 20-70 in the other eye. Um, so I was able to see well enough to do so many things, but at that level of vision, I really felt as though I was blind because I just couldn't see things the way that I used to. And so one of the things that I, I felt was very, very important for myself was to really do something that could make me happy again. But um, so what I, I really did is that I had to find a way to find happiness in my life. And the only way that I was able to find happiness was to do what I enjoyed, and that was helping children. And once I was able to do something that made me happier, I then started to go out of my home. I had to go out of the home to meet different people, and uh, I actually did meet uh, a gentleman, Keith Christian, who's on the call tonight, and I went to my daughter's open house. And when I went to say hi to him in his room, he had heard about my retirement. But he opened my eyes where I was able to understand that this vision loss doesn't have to be the end of doing the things I want to do. And he showed me all the amazing things that he was doing with his students in the classroom. You know, they had a terrarium, they were growing plants, and he had a music room. And it was it was awesome. He put on this electric guitar on me, and I was strumming, even though I don't know how to play but a few chords. But it was so much fun. And that Saturday, I'll never forget it, it was drizzling, and he came over to my house unexpectedly. I didn't know he was coming. I don't even know how he knew where I lived. But he then started to teach me how to use the technology. And as I started to learn to use JAWS and other equipment, I realized that I could do things again. And at that point in time, it was such that I was okay with letting others know that I had a vision impairment. But all in all, uh, I'm going to turn it over to our other speakers as, as, as we start to introduce them. 
My main point that I want to share with all of you out there is that for me, when I revealed to the world that I had a vision impairment and I was comfortable with being seen with my white cane, my life changed for the better. It was so much better because until I was able to do that, all that I did every day was I tried to hide from everybody the fact that I was visually impaired. My ego was so big that I didn't want people to know that I had a vision impairment. I was afraid that if I go out in public, what if somebody sees me stumble? And God forbid, what if somebody sees me with its cane? But when I then started to go out in public and I did lectures with my cane, it was the biggest weight lifted off of my shoulders because I didn't have to hide. And people said, you know, we we all have heard that you have a vision problem, and uh, we're really glad that you're out and you're able to tell us about it. And I feel for myself when I let the world know that I was visually impaired, it, it really, really changed my life. So without any further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our panel of speakers here this evening. And our first speaker is uh, Keith Christian. Uh, Keith Christian, many of you may know Keith. He is a teacher for the visually impaired from Anaheim, California, and he has given many presentations here on CCLVI with us. And he's just really um, the person that I'd have to say has influenced my life the most since becoming visually impaired. And, uh, you know, in many ways, Keith was such a, a regular, typical person. He didn't ever present himself as, hey, I'm Keith Christian, the, the visually impaired guy. I'm just Keith Christian. And he was actually a student of mine for a class that I was teaching. And when I met him and I learned all the things this guy was doing, I said, if he could do these things, I think I should be able to do that as well. So uh, I want to welcome you and thank you for coming on the show, Keith. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker that we also have here is Richard Retta. And most of you don't do know Richard. He was the former president of CCLVI, one of the most inspiring, one of the kindest gentlemen that I've ever met, one of the most organized people I've ever met in any type of organization. And Richard is now running the program for the STEP program and other programs that are related to high school college-age students for the junior blind in Northern California. So uh, welcome to the show, uh, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Bill. And and last and definitely uh, not least is Annette Carter. She's the webmaster for CCLVI. She does so many things for CCLVI, and uh, she helped Richard and I to publish the book that we hope many of you will be very interested in, which is called Insights into Low Vision. This is a book that is designed specifically for people with vision impairment, and we have all authored articles about this. We have articles from the leading experts in the country that talk about how do you find a low vision doctor, how do you perform daily activities, how do you get other resources, and uh, Annette was uh, really so instrumental in getting this book published. It is now available through CCLVI. Any new member of CCLVI will receive one for free. Lifetime members will receive a copy for free. 
and current members can purchase one for five dollars. So if anybody is interested, you can call the CCLVI office. So uh, welcome, Annette, and really glad you're able to make it. I'm happy to be here. Yes, thank you so much. We couldn't start until you were here, so thank you very, very much. Life well, on paratransit. <laughs> you know, the first thing I just want to go ahead and to ask all of you, and why don't we go ahead and we'll begin with Keith. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, because I think for each of us, our background, if you were born visually impaired and you had no choice other than to let others know you were visually impaired, but tell us a little bit about your background and what has been your overall experience or your recommendation in terms of letting friends and others know about your vision problem, and how do you normally tell people you have a vision problem? Oh, well, I can really relate to uh, your story that you presented. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born legally blind. I have RP, and um, <clears throat> when, as I grew up, I was able to see, you know, I could read regular print for a few minutes, and then uh, my eyes would fatigue, and then I would act like I couldn't read. I mean, like I was still reading, but I was just moving my finger in class and <clears throat> that sort of stuff. And then it was more important for me socially to fit in in, in elementary school. And, and uh, I, I hid my blindness like uh, uh, it, it was very important for me not to, you know, show my, my visual impairment. Um, but as I got older, it got harder and harder to hide as I rode bicycles and ran into things and, and having night blindness running into everything from uh, fire hydrants to parked cars into people. Um, you, I found myself a lot of times in situations where I had to explain that I, wasn't, I don't see very well or, or be beat up, you know. I mean, it was, it, you know, you have to be able to explain what what the problem is. In short, easy to understand statements, and if you don't have a cane, it's <clears throat> a lot harder to do. Um, but as I got older, uh, getting out of high school, as I got a little more mature, um, it became a little bit easier, but I still I didn't want to accept that cane. There was something about holding that cane that was so threatening, and I don't know why, but <clears throat> I just didn't want to do it. But, uh, but like you said, Dr. Bill, when once I started holding it and it, it like took a big weight off of my shoulders because I didn't have to explain things in such a way that uh, um, I had to really try to convince them that I, the reason why I bumped into you is because I don't see very well, not that I'm, you know, for some other reason. And um, it just seemed like it really made it a lot easier for me just to say, you don't see very well, and they just look at the cane and go, oh. And then I noticed that when I walked with a cane, people would be much more... Uh, willing to move out of the way. Not that I want them to move out of the way, but I would, you know, uh, walk around and I was polite, but, but I found that I just got around a whole lot easier, whether it was in stores, whether it was walking down the sidewalk or in the parking lot. It just got a whole lot easier for me. And and I just learned that, well, wait a minute, you know, it's not that hard just to say, I don't see very well, excuse me, and just smile. I think the thing that helped me the most was learning just how to smile and not take it so serious. Because it was definitely serious, and I was really uptight, but <laughs> but I was able to find some way to make it kind of easy for the person that that mm -hmm. I ran into, whether it was in the grocery store or uh, in a parking lot, whatever. I just w would try to laugh and smile, say, "You know, I don't see well. I'm really sorry." And it just got easier, and it didn't seem to be as um, difficult the more I practiced it, and um, I just I became comfortable just 
uh, who I am, and I try not to hide it. And when people found out or if I told them, it didn't seem to bother me as much as I practiced um, letting them know. You know, Keith, when you were a, a student in elementary school, yeah. were you willing at that point in time to take the teasing from other students by saying, oh, okay, Keith, he's clumsy, or he's just goofing around, he's a clown. Would they you called me the blind bat, is what they called me. And 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 it, it provoked fights. It did. And did, how did these other kids know, though, when you were in elementary school that you had a vision problem? Were you wearing very thick glasses? Was that what clued no. them up? Or just from no. them watching the way you moved? Well, I used to hang out with them. They were the neighborhood kids. And when we would ride our bikes at night, I'd have to, you know, uh, I, the way I would see where I was going is look up at the streetlights. And, you know, it was kind of obvious that there was something wrong because I'm looking at the streetlights trying to figure out where the side of the road is, you know, where I would run into parked cars or I'd make sure that, you know, my tires were making enough noise so I could use, like, echolocation to see where I'm going. And they would they would stop talking. When they would get mad at me, they'd stop talking, so I couldn't really tell where, where people were. It was just, you know, kids find out. <laughs> yeah. it's, blindness is a, is a hard thing to fool. During the day with RP, you can do it. But at night, it, it's a, another ball game. I, it was like I had two different lives. During the day, I could, I could pass for sighted, but as it got dusk, I could tell it's going to, you know, uh, uh, you have to put on another hat. Yes, and I know uh, with so many other patients that have come into uh, the Center for the Parts Society with RP, with retinitis pigmentosa, they said that they felt like they were always battling the clock. Yes. They were so unhappy when it changed from daylight savings to standard time because they lost another hour of their life, and they would always try to rush home, almost like Cinderella. you got to be home by a certain time (laughs) because after that, they felt, I can't see, and I can't let people know that I can't see at night. Yeah. So how about you, Richard? Can you tell us, uh, were you uh, born visually impaired, or did you develop vision problems as an adult? Uh, yeah, Dr. Bill, thank you. I was born legally blind, born with cataracts and with congenital glaucoma um, throughout my childhood until about about six years ago now. I wore bifocals and... Uh, had had vision in my right eye, and so as a child, I wore bifocals and I would get teased as a kid with those big, huge, thick glasses. You know, four eyes and how many fingers can I see? And you you take it in stride. It was it wasn't always easy, but I was able to go through my childhood years without using the cane. And then as I got into high school, as vision started to um, fluctuate, I had to use the cane. I remember um, my mobility instructor, who I often check in with just, you know, to see how she's doing, um, reminds me, yeah, you had cane shame in high school. I would have to, uh, she would have to take me off campus several blocks in order for to show me how to use the cane because I didn't want to be seen with it on the campus. I was afraid of, of how people would perceive me. Um, it wasn't until... Well, the late 90s, I guess, just to kind of give you, abbreviate everything here, I um, started having significant vision loss with uh, a failing cornea on top of the issues I've had with glaucoma. And since then, I've had four cornea transplants, and um, 
I've had to use the cane and pick it up and not just use it during the day but at night as well. Um, and since I've, I, I now use a guide dog, um, a seeing eye dog that, you know, really is of a, a great value to me and we, we get around much faster because as good of a cane user as I have become, I'm still slow and I'm tall and I'm a fast walker and sometimes the cane and I just don't stop as fast as we want to. So having a, a you know, working with a guide dog is, has been really um, very helpful, I think. Uh, and I would only add that I think the the, the most significant challenge for me has been over the past year and a half when I um, when I lost all my vision several times because of a, of a retina detachment. And I think Dr. Bill and Keith, you remember, I was supposed to meet you guys at the CTEVI conference the day I, I had a vitreous hemorrhage and I had lost all my vision. Um, and since, I, I've, I've had surgeries to um, reattach the retina through Stanford, but I, I've had a lot of adjustment and a lot of downtime where I've had to really force myself to be comfortable with no vision and, and just become comfortable with that. And I Glad to say I've had a good support system to help me get through it. And, and having been in the business of working with blind people for the past 20 years, uh, even through college, I think it's been easier. Um, and, and you live your life in the fishbowl because you're always telling your story to folks. And so I think that helps uh, by just talking about it. Thank you. Now, how about you, Annette? Well, how about your story? My story, it's also changed through time. I was born blind uh, with uh, severe astigmatism and severe myopia, um, where I was off the smelling chart. I could only see wiggling fingers right in front of my eye. Uh, but I was able to live a good part of my life as I was as sighted because I got the thick, uh, very, very thick glasses. They we used to call them Coke bottle glasses when I was age four. And... Uh, they weren't good enough for my eyes, so I got contacts at age 10. And back then, um, the soft weren't very popular, but they wouldn't have helped me because of the severe astigmatism. So I wore the hard lenses from age 10 to age 19 when an ophthalmologist fit me in correctly for contacts and they gripped my eyes and were painful and I kept going back and kept saying they're not right. He said, no, no, the other ones were too loose, persevere. And I said, no, I've worn them since I was 10, something's not right. And then I finally went to Wells Eye Hospital in Philadelphia and he said, I have ulcerations, lacerations, and mutilation because my eyes were being gripped by the contacts instead of floating on a layer of tear. So there was some adjustment time to that. So I was without anything. I had already grown out of the uh, being able to wear contact, I mean, uh, glasses, spectacle glasses at all. So I had nothing to go back on. So I was without anything for about a month. And then the ophthalmologist there uh, said, okay, let's try these. These are fit correctly, and I just could not wear them. Uh, they were just as painful, but my eyes had become permanently sensitized. So we tried gas permeable, semi-soft, everything. Um, so finally, I just had to go with the soft lenses, and from that point on, it was um, I was visually impaired, but I didn't look like it. I just couldn't see things that my siblings could see and others could see. So it was a little difficult with the blackboard and um, 
faces and things like that, but I pretty much lived as a sighted person. Uh, I drove a car. Um, I didn't see well, but I saw well enough to drive a car, and I was careful. And then uh, at around age 42, 40-something like that, um, just wearing the soft lenses for that many years, the pain was getting had been already unbearable, but I just kept wearing them. And it got to a point where my eyes were getting worse and I was enduring that pain. And every time I put my contacts in, it's like putting on pain on your eyes. And uh, I thought, you know, well, the first thing I did was I went to an uh, ophthalmologist because I hadn't been in years because there was nothing that could be done. Uh, so I went and I thought, well, there's laser surgery, there's new medical technology, maybe there's something. And he almost laughed me out of the office saying, well, you must know that there's nothing that can be done. But that actually was good. You know, I needed to hear that because I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and said, okay, I'm 42. I haven't lived half of my life. Uh, what do I do now? What do I need to go further? And I don't know where I got that wisdom, but I knew I just needed to learn whatever I don't know. I hadn't been around anybody that's blind. I didn't know anything uh, of those types of things, but I knew that there were skills that I could learn that I didn't just adapt to, you know, from being blind within my own home. So uh, I uh, went to the School for the Blind um, in Denver and learned my skills. Um, and, uh, it's the best, it's, it's one of the best things I've done in my life is to, to go and learn my skills. And I, I said, give me everything. And, uh, so, you know, they tell you approximately how much time, you know, it will yeah. take you. And they said about 18 months, but at six months, they said, there's nothing more to teach you. But you know, uh, that, that's really a, a remarkable story. Your case is, you know, quite unique too, because with most of the patients that I have seen, that uh, they often are are not at that situation where they are saying, "Let me go and learn how to do these things." Now, in your case, then Annette, for much much a large part of your childhood, you were wearing a form of a contact lens, and right? Most of the people probably with your condition, the shape of the outside of your eyes, everything looked normal. So your eyes right. looked normal. Did you inform other children or your teachers that you have a vision problem? When up until age 10, I wore the very, very thick glasses and you knew, you know, because yeah, they weren't about, even good, about, good after, enough. After that? After that, when you, you know, when you um, had the contact lens where you appeared to have typical vision. How did you um, handle that? Did you let others know that you had a vision problem while you were wearing the contact lenses? Not really, because I think that I wasn't even aware. Uh, I I thought I wasn't as observant as the others, because they would say, so-and-so's in the room and all that, and I thought I was just a non-observant person. Well, how about, Annette, when you got a bit older and then you did earn a driver's license, uh, at that point in time, did you know your vision was reduced and did you tell anybody that you were visually impaired? No, because I passed the eye tests 
you know, I, I just, I, I use what my O&M uh, instructor called blur determination, <laughs> and, and that got me through uh, uh, okay. where so I you never, kinda... you You really never did have a point during your uh, high school years or college years that you, you really felt the need to tell people that you were visually impaired. Right. Is that right? Right. Okay. And was any of that just because of the fact, was it because... You just felt, I see pretty well, and I don't need to tell anybody? Or was it that you were embarrassed to tell people? Or did you feel you might be discriminated against? I don't ever remember being embarrassed. I I think I didn't notice how much, you know, of a vision impairment I had because I, I was able to do whatever I needed to do. Um I I kind of found my way. I, I wasn't embarrassed to tell because I didn't think there. I didn't know there was anything to tell. Okay. At so that your case at that is point. Really, yeah, your case is quite interesting. So, how about even today? Do you now think the level of story. vision is at a point where you feel I really don't have a vision problem? It no, it's totally different because um, at age um, forty-two, um, when I went to see the doctor. To, to see if there's anything, I had to stop wearing contacts. So what's yes. unique with me is I could not put those in my eyes one more day. I went like years past my breaking point. So um, yes. it, and it caused, caused me, you know, nervousness because it's just living with like glass on your, broken glass on your eyes. So that is the big point where yes. It and when that it. happened at that point when you could no longer wear your contact lenses, would you tell people that you had a vision problem? When you went into the market, for example, and you're holding your, your currency, you know, a couple of inches from your eyes to read it, uh, did you tell people you had a vision impairment or did you ask people for help or did you just keep it quiet right when you are about 42? Well, it was obvious because I can't go out. Side my front door without my cane because I can't see the ground. My for okay. for uh, prescri- my prescription for a contact was a minus eighteen point seven five, so that's pretty severe uh, myopia. So so I would use a cane, and yes, I would hold things up to my eyes. So it was obvious, but if I wasn't trying to read something and wasn't using my cane, yes, I I didn't always look like I had a vision impairment. So that's where the difference. Uh, would be. Um, So I guess, you know, this is a really good illustration. Your case is quite good also for parents on the call tonight to understand that in many situations, even if your child is partially sighted, to them that's the way that they always see, and they may not really understand how others see, so they may not necessarily feel their vision is that poor. Or like in Annette's case, she was able to pass and get the, her driver's license, and she probably felt, if my vision is good enough to get a driver's license, my vision isn't that poor. So it, it's very, very interesting, and that may be a reason why some children don't really tell others that they have a vision problem because they're not completely aware. Now, Richard, what about yourself? Now, you had stated as a young child it was always obvious you had a vision problem because of the thick bifocals. But what about when you were on the phone and, you know, it's a high school and you wanted to talk to a girl or it's a dating time and you're you're talking to this person over the phone for the first time as you met 
Uh, did you ever run into situations like that? And would you tell these girls or these guys that, you know, you just met over the phone that you had a vision problem? Well, I think I think more in high school than in college, I was really shy. So I really didn't ask many girls out in high school. I, I, I was, you know, I didn't really develop my social skills. I was really focused on the academic life. I think in, in college, it was awkward because I, I, I hadn't asked any girls out. And, I, and you know, I think the... I, I had the the I didn't really do it over the phone as much. I think it was more of the um, you know the the person in I, in class who I would hang out with and, and, and ask her out. And you know she, it was obvious at that point that I was visually impaired because I had my bifocals on and I, I'd carry a cane around campus. Which when you are low vision and you wear eyeglasses and carry a cane, that that really confuses folks. So you really have to yeah. come up with a script um, if you're if you don't have lots of time to tell people in passing why you're wearing wearing glasses and using a cane and have to describe what low vision is, what visually impaired or partially sighted means to people and. It really depends on your bandwidth and if you have the ability to to explicitly describe this. And if you're interested in somebody, you're going to make it work. You're going to find time. So I, I, that did work to my advantage, yes. Yes, and, you know, you bring up a good point. I know that for myself there were many times because I had, I had some vision and I could see straight ahead, uh, so I was able to make eye contact with people. So when I would use my cane and I would – talk to a person, I looked directly at them, and they said, what are you trying to pull? Why are you using a cane? You're not blind. Yes. And I said, you know, I'm I'm legally blind. My vision is blurred. He says, well, how come you could look and, and, and make eye contact? And I said, well, you know, legal blindness is measured based on how well you see from 20 feet, and you're at a closer distance so I could see and I just remember one gentleman, he really thought I was trying to pull a scam because I was waiting in, in Target. You know, I don't like shopping at Target very much, but I was waiting for my kids as they were shopping in Target. And this guy must have thought that I was just trying to panhandle money with this cane, and he was really upset with me. So uh, that's a great point you bring up there. I will. I will say. I think the the thing that I was uh, most discriminated in. I was in my senior year of high school, and my parents were all about, "Okay, it's time for you to get a job. Let's get you a job because your sighted peers who are 17 are getting jobs." So they drove me around, and I applied for. I had already worked at at, at Carl's Jr., but this was a year and a half later, and. So I, I went into a, uh, I believe it was a Wendy's, I'm not sure, and I, behind the counter, I asked for a job application, and that's what you did. And wearing my glasses, and these two people just looked at each other the, behind the counter going, I, I don't know if we should be, you know, giving you an application. Because they, they, didn't, they didn't really verbally say anything, but their expression, I could see they were just shocked at a person who was, Apparently, he had a disability. You know, would would come in and ask for a job allocation. How dare they? So, you know, I, I think you you do face that sometimes. And I I didn't have the social skills or the social set then that I do that I did later on in college uh, to explain or to to you know, have the advocacy skills that I later you know inherited. You know, and that's so right. And the reality of it is that 
a large percentage of the general public are just ignorant, and I know I was one of those myself. I was working at the Center for the Parts You Sighted. I was a, a low vision optometrist. I was the chief of, of low vision there. And a young lady, she must have been about 22, she came in and she was visually impaired. She had a cane. And uh, she she told me that she was working at McDonald's. And I just laughed because I thought that was a joke. She was a very funny woman. And I just laughed out loud because I said, yeah, right. And she goes, no, I am kidding. And I go, well, you're, you're working at McDonald's? And in my mind, I was thinking, no, she can't cook. She can't really see, you know, the food to put in the bag. Uh, she can't see well enough to see the currency. And, and she really taught me a lesson. She said, you know, my job is I'm the one who makes all of the special salads at McDonald's, so I have my station. I don't really need to see it. I could feel all the different ingredients. I put it in these containers, and I'm I'm the salad person. And I was so embarrassed because here it is. I'm thinking, I'm a doctor. You know, I went to 10 years of school to become a doctor, and I didn't even know. I was completely ignorant that a person who was legally blind would be able to do that type of work. And it's very important, I hope all of you understand that, that most doctors, whether they are optometrists or ophthalmologists, they don't really spend a lot of time with people who are visually impaired and talk to them about their lives. A good friend of mine who's a retina specialist, he says he sees about 75 patients a day. So he doesn't have time to find out what you do or how you do things. And so that's one of the reasons that we are doing a lot of this work is to educate all the healthcare professionals about how people with low vision do live very, very well with low vision. Now, Keith, what about you? I, I, I would imagine that uh, you were not a very shy person in college and high school and junior high school, and uh, did did that ever become a situation where you called a girl or you met a girl over the phone somehow, maybe somebody gave you a phone number, and did you tell her or tell this person that you were visually impaired as you were making friends with that person? Well, I, I was actually rather shy um, growing up, but, uh, um, <laughs> but, but speaking on the phone really leveled the playing field in a way that I always thought that people were, you know, may suspect I'm visually impaired. It was like a something that I, I just wanted to hide and I wanted to be like everybody else. And and um, I did find myself um, di- misdialing a phone number and and um, it, it just happened to be one number off from some another friend of mine that I was calling and and I called and a girl answered the phone. I just said, "Is so and so there?" She says, "No." And I, she, it was clear I made the wrong number, and I just said, "Wow, well, gosh, sorry, it's the wrong number. You sound awfully cute, but I gotta go." So I hung up, and and the same thing happened a week later, and eventually I found myself going, "Wow, I wonder what she looks like." <laughs> she doesn't sound, sound like my age. She was in high school, and and um, eventually started calling her and just talking to her. And found she worked from midnight to to seven in the morning at a. She was like a overnight. Um, like a house parent in a group home, and we would talk all night long, and we talked for about three months, and and then she became really upset when she found out from somebody at her school that I was 
blind, and, and uh, she got really upset with me, and um, she says, uh, how come you never told me? We had those long talks all night long, and we would we talked about everything. That was the neat thing about it is we could talk about anything. And um, and I just said, well, uh, you never asked me. <laughs> and uh, it was it, it's kind of funny because uh, that person's my wife today. I married her. <laughs> We've been married uh, 24 years. And um, just something about being on the phone, it, it felt anonymous, and it was it was possible to be, you know, I didn't feel like I had to hide anything. It wasn't obvious, and um, it was just one of those fun things that I did that it was kind of neat. You know, and, and in retrospect now, do you wish that if you were doing this all over again and you were talking and misdialing the phone and you, you, you spoke to Diane, do you wish that you would have said, you know what, by the way, I want to tell you that I, I have a vision problem, or do you think that it really didn't matter? It really didn't matter. It, you know what? It it, it never really. Uh, it wasn't something I really wanted to bring out, and I I think I, I wouldn't. I would do it the same way. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> However, I, I I wish that I wasn't trying to hide it so much. I wish that I was a little bit more mature, and that it didn't bother me so much. Like because it did, and uh, it wasn't until much later that I became uh, much much more comfortable in my own skin. I guess about the whole thing. Well, you know, uh, for myself now, it, it, it's been um, it's been about four years that I've been totally blind, and at this point in time, I don't think on a daily basis do I have vision or am I blind, right. and I really don't have any difficulties at all. So when I do meet people, say that I'm calling a person cross country and I'm trying to do some particular business, and they ask me for something. Say, for example, they ask me for a credit card or the account number on my invoice. Uh, you know, I have no problems at all whatsoever of telling anybody that I'm blinded. I I believe that part of that is just because I have gained these skills uh, to be able to do the things that I need to do. And I, I have this level of confidence and maturity. I'm not embarrassed about being blind uh, at all. And maybe it's just because I'm older. But do you think, Keith, if uh, let's say that you were a single person now and you had called a person, maybe somebody gave you a phone number to meet a, a woman for a date or what have you, today would you let that person know that you're visually impaired or would you do it the same way you did with your wife, Diane, uh, when you were in high school? I'm sure I'd do it differently, but I think the conversation would be a little bit more mature. Uh, uh, I'm sure it would come up much sooner um, because it is who I am now. Before, uh, when I when when uh, when I was younger, I didn't see myself as a visually impaired person. I didn't think of it. it. It didn't really cross my mind that I'm blind or I'm you know I was severely visually impaired. It. it, it I didn't. I wasn't reminded that I had a visual impairment until I ran into something. Until I go, oh, geez, I, sh-, you know, I, obviously I didn't see that, but it was never really in my consciousness. But uh, as I got older and my vision's much worse, it's it's um, much more obvious. But also, it's more of who I am now today than it was when I was a kid. I'm not running from it, and I'm comfortable talking about it, and uh, I think it would come up much sooner if I was still dating. You know, and uh, Richard and Annette, please excuse me, because I I really don't know your your uh, 
situation right now with uh, dating or, or what have you, but uh, Richard, if if you were uh, given a number and someone said, hey, you know, I think uh, you might like uh, meeting this person the next time that you're in San Diego, why don't you give her a call? Do you think today, would you tell that other person that you have a vision impairment? Yeah, I think it wouldn't. It wouldn't be uh, a thing that would. It wouldn't be a barrier. It wouldn't be something I would hide. It would be something I would. I would bring up. It might not be the first thing, but in that initial conversation, it would certainly come up. Yeah. How about you, Annette? Um, I. It wouldn't be a problem for me because the people, other than on the phone, the people that that know me whether they're sighted men or blind men, uh, it's not a problem with them, so it's not a problem with me. I don't hide it. I I do have a little funny to tell you that that tells other people's attitudes. Uh, You know, when I I was 42, you know, because I lived my life sighted, you know, that's kind of from sighted to blind, even though I was blind without my contacts. Um, I was surprised at how other people treated me because I thought, oh, I just learned these skills and I go on. But it wasn't like that for others. And here's a, a little example. I've already gone through the skills and, and everything. And I visited the state that I live in now the year before I moved here. And my I had my sister and nephew that lived here. My nephew was 12 or 13. We walked to the 7-Eleven and we were standing waiting to cross the street. And my nephew said, hey, Antoinette, that guy in that car, he's checking you out. I said, no, he's not. He said, no, I know. He's checking you out. I, I, I said, well, you know, maybe he's just, no, he's checking you out. So we got back to my sister's house, and he says, hey, Mom, this guy, he was checking out Antoinette. And she said, well, did you, did he see your cane? And he's no, no, no. He wasn't looking at the cane. He was. Che- he says, "Well, did you? Did he see your cane?" So her ad- and he told everybody. She told everybody in my church. You know, well, she must not have seen the cane. So that's just how people. Some people's attitudes <laughs> are that it would make a difference. <laughs> oh yes. But if I have to describe myself to meet someone somewhere, I will put in the sunglasses and the white cane. I'll say short, salt and pepper hair. Uh, uh, I'm I'm petite, uh, short, salt and pepper hair, uh, sunglasses, and a white cane. So I'll make sure that's in there. Because why why hide it? Because I can And I'll say I won't be able to see you. So that's why I'm describing myself. Because I won't be able to see you. Now, Keith, what about for yourself? Uh, when you were applying, I don't know if this was your first uh, job after you earned your degree, but when you applied for the position. Was there ever a situation that you were asked to be involved in a telephone interview for a job? And did you reveal at that time before the face-to-face interview that you had a vision impairment? Uh, no, my my uh, interviews were in front of a panel, and I had to come in and sit down. And, and, I, and I did debate whether I should walk in with my cane unfolded or folded. And uh, I did walk in with it folded up in my hand and I, it was a talking point but it wasn't something that I I, I I didn't walk in tap in my cane it was just you know I walked in and and I I presented my uh, 
my portfolio talked about things, but I know that they were really interested in more about how am I going to handle the classroom and management, and, and they were really interested in the cane. And I, and I talked about it, and I just I try to talk about it in a way that would um, demonstrate my, my, my ability to run the classroom rather than focus so much on what I can't do. But uh, there was no phone interviews, but, but it, I did have to, uh, you know, call and schedule appointments, and I did not mention it at that time. They, they, when they met me is when they found out I was uh, carrying a cane. So that was a great idea. Prior to the interview, you anticipated what types of questions they may ask at how your vision impairment may uh, inhibit you from doing certain skills, and you had the answers. Absolutely. How about you, Richard? Has has there ever been times that they've asked you to call in for an interview, and if so, did you reveal that you had a vision impairment? You know, I think back to the um, one of my first interviews for um, working for the state. It was a phone interview when I was living down in Southern California, and um, I didn't get any of the interviews I, I did in person in Los Angeles, and so I interviewed for a job by phone for San Francisco, and, and, and uh, never. And I, I'm pretty sure that they knew I um, that they didn't know I had a visual impairment or disability. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, that was the case. This is over 12 and a half years ago, but uh, that didn't come up in the interview, and I didn't bring it up. And so, in in that case, do you do you believe that uh, for that particular job position, if they had known that you were visually impaired, do you think that you may not have uh, earned that job? I I doubt it because you know applying for the state and being applying to be a counselor, they are aware of people who are disabled applying and, and becoming counselors all the time. So I I was fortunate to have um, not have that problem. And I'm trying to think of other times in my life where I interviewed by phone and I and I nothing comes to mind at this point. But um, yeah. How about you, Annette? Have Have you ever had that type of situation with a telephone interview for a job? or even a face-to-face that you you did not reveal that you had a vision impairment, or did you reveal? Yeah, I could I could remember one where uh, we did talk on the phone because my resume, um, they did call me and ask some questions and ask me to come in for an interview. That I decided to show up not letting them know because of the position it was, um, I don't know, you know, but I wanted to, you know, kind of see if they were discriminatory or not. Um, so I I did all the legwork, um, like, you know, asking things like, is the door on the south side or the east side, those kinds of things. So I got, you know, fine and up the elevator and, and I just, you know, announced myself and sat down and waited. I don't know what the receptionist told the interviewers, uh, but I just sat there with my white cane and uh, then I was called in for the interview uh, with uh, the two women, and uh, I entered and I put my hand out to shake, and it was within the reach for the one woman, and the and I didn't move for the other woman, and she came around and shook my hand, and uh, I'm sure they were very very surprised, but you know any little um, things that weren't quite appropriate in the interview, I just let slide, and uh, my qualifications uh, spoke for themselves and I got hired um, for my qualifications. Um, It was after that that I was tremendously discriminated 
but I got hired because there wasn't anybody else that qualified like I did for the position. Wow, that's great. That's great to hear the fact that, yes, you were able to get the job because of your skills. And I know for myself, I have been asked numerous occasions to serve as an expert witness. And uh, I have always told the attorneys that were searching for an expert witness, told them that, you know, I am blind. I want you to know up front that I am blind. But I am able to review all of the witness materials and evidence and they said no problem we don't care if you could see or not we just need to know whether you do understand the information and are you able to testify to that so i i have found it to be you know very helpful all around for me to disclose that i'm visually impaired and blind and uh, i think that having the cane just like the guide dog that Richard and Keith use, having a cane and a guide dog, that does the talking for you. You don't have to really let people know. And overall, it's been very helpful. Uh, We have about five minutes left, and let's go ahead, and if anybody has questions for Keith, Richard, or Annette, go ahead and press star six, and you could go ahead and ask your question. This is Ken with a question. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, Don't we have a chapter in our book that you mentioned on this subject? Uh, Yes. Do you have a question? That was the question. Are you going to tell us about it? Yes. Uh, In the book that we had discussed about that, I think it was before that you had come on, we do have a book that is called The Insights into Low Vision, and it does discuss so many different aspects of being visually impaired. How do you find help? How do you cope with some of the emotional difficulties? How do you find resources? So, again, if anybody is interested in that, if you're not a member of CCLVI, you can become a member, and the book is provided for free. If you are currently a member, you can then purchase the book for $5. You could contact CCLVI and uh, Annette Carter. Does anybody else have a question? Oh, we had a chapter yes, about how to tell people about your vision impairment. That's what I was talking about. That was my reference. Do we have another question, please? Uh, yes, I do. Um, my name is Andrea. I was wondering if yourself or any of the panelists um, could uh, give me an information that they've had with uh, networking. I used to do a lot of networking, and like you, doctor, um, been sighted up until the last five years and have very good peripheral vision, so... I get along well without my cane, and everyone thinks I'm fine until I, you know, explain myself. But in networking situations, um, you know, I can't, I can't see people and make eye contact if someone's smiling. You don't want to come off rude, and would like to know if you or the others have some experience in that area they might share. Hey, Richard, you want to answer that? Because as a president, I know that you attended many, many meetings and things. I, I, yeah, and thank you. I what I think what works for me when networking, in terms of attending conferences and meetings or or just meeting people in public is, you know, it, it on the situation. It, I either you know am having my cane with me, or or my guide dog, and in, in areas that I'm familiar with, certain buildings I may know the layout. I may have my ID cane with me, and because I do have limited vision in my right eye, I'm able to make eye contact and and just, you know, 
make that initial contact, hello, my name is Richard, and, you know, and when it's appropriate, offer my business card and, and just strike up a conversation. And if they want to steer it to my blindness or want to know more about my dog, I will bring it up, but I, I really don't want it to be the center of the conversation, so I, I try to steer it back to the business at hand, whatever, depending on the, on the situation, whether it's a uh, you know something I'm presenting on or, or just a social situation. You know, and I would say for myself, uh, when I travel to these different cities that I've never been before and I travel alone, uh, it has been so helpful to take the advice that I know both Keith and Richard stated and to try to be friendly and smile. I have found that taxi drivers will walk me directly right into the hotel to the registration desk. Uh, Everybody has been just so helpful. And when I'm in those social networking meetings, having the cane has been really a lifesaver for me because I often don't remember people's names and faces together. And after I lost my vision and I have my cane, everybody who does come up to me, they always introduce themselves by name. They'll say, hi, this is Keith, how are you? And it really made so many things easier for me. So I think maybe like Richard's idea, maybe you might want to just carry a very small identification cane just so that it will let others know that you may not recognize them or if they're waving at you across the ballroom, maybe you don't see them and you don't have to do any explanation. The cane does it for you. So I think that would be something that you'd find to be very helpful. Thank you. Yes, uh, another question, please. Hi, this is Elsa. I just wanted to make a quick comment. I actually get the opposite. I first started with a white cane um, in my mid-20s, actually, because I went most of my earlier part of my life uh, without a white cane even. But more recently, I've had a guide dog, and more <laughs> more often than not, I get people um, asking me if I'm the actual trainer of the dog. So I still have to explain that, no, uh, he's a service dog, and he's actually my guide. Is that Dr. Right? Bill, I was actually going to say that earlier in the conversation. <laughs> Um, and, and I know Elsa, but I, I actually was thinking that about two or three comments ago that you know if you're if you're um, you know out there, sometimes people think you're the trainer. I had someone on Bart yesterday uh, comment to a friend of theirs, "Oh, they must be uh, training their dogs. They're they're very appropriate." Uh, my colleague Rob and I both have dogs, so you know you get that sometimes. I don't mean to interrupt Richard, but I just wanted to say, I mean, I, sometimes I take it as a compliment. It just depends on how it's. Um, Presented, but sometimes I take it as a compliment because I feel that that shows um, my mobility skills are, you know, quite well. And a lot of people end up approaching me. <laughs> this is um, this happens with guys um, more often than not. They come up and they say hi. Oh, okay, she's alone. She's with the dog. Let's say hello. And as soon as they find out about the disability, you know, they turn around and say, Oh, okay, have a good day. And I say, Well, you're lost. But um, I, you know, I take it as a compliment in terms of my mobility and how a lot of the times people say you don't you don't look visually impaired. Um, you seem very capable of doing anything just a sunny-sided person. Yeah, I I think that really is it because uh, you see some people who move so smoothly with their guide dog that people would just assume that yes, they are sighted and they're they're a trainer. And that is really an unfortunate situation that we still do have people 
a lot of people in this society that if they know that you do have a vision problem or a hearing problem or other medical problem, a lot of people, they become fearful and they they don't want to meet you or to get to know you better. And it's it's really a shame because they're truly missing out. And what I have learned, I have learned this after I became disabled, so to speak, or blind. There are so many people that have come up to me or people have written me letters and sent me emails telling me about their problems. And I really believe, I would say that perhaps 9 out of 10 people do have other problems. It's just that some of these problems aren't readily known. But there's people Mm -hmm. with anxiety. There's people who have other types of mental illness. There's people who have severe food allergies, whatever. Everybody has something that is a weakness. And, uh, you know, ours may happen to be our vision, but uh, those others who don't choose to be with us, they're really missing out. And Alsa... You sound like such a, a wonderful woman, and uh, thank you. They are missing out. I do believe they are. I do think, um, and I don't mean to sound um, like I'm over exaggerating, but that's just part of the confidence I've built throughout the years in myself and what I've learned and accomplished. Um, and I, I agree with you, and I, I can relate to several things um, you know mentioned earlier today in this conference, well, one, having a visual impairment where I feel like I also live in a little bit of both worlds because during the day I can see certain things, um, not with clarity, but uh, it does depend on the closeness or the amount of lighting, but at night I do become practically total, so it's a little challenging to have to go from, uh, you know, during the day to during the night. And it's the first time, I really liked what you said, it's the first time I hear it and I think I'm going to keep it. <laughs> I think I've felt like Cinderella. I can relate to that. Run home because it's almost dark and you don't know whether you can get there. <laughs> I've been there. Gosh, well, you know, it's really so nice to have you on the call. And I, I wish we had more time this evening, but I want to thank all of you. I mean, this is such a great audience. i like to thank Annette, Richard, and Keith, thank all of you for uh, joining us this evening. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you, Bill. And uh, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA, I want to thank you for recording this. Uh, This is going to be on the CCLVI website at www.cclvi.org, and it will also be broadcast on ACB Radio, and it will also be on www.airsla.org, that's A-I-R-S-L-A.org, along with all of the other programs that we've done uh, through CCLVI. So, again, want to thank all of you for uh, joining us this evening. If any of you are interested in the book Insights into Low Vision that Ken Stewart was talking about, you could contact Annette Carter or the main CCLVI office. And we hope that you join us uh, next month where we bring you more on Let's Talk Low Vision. Thank you. Good night, everybody.